and live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up today, we look ahead to the first big milestone in the race to find the Republican presidential candidate, the Iowa caucuses. But will voters go for Donald Trump? Also ahead, we head to the Bay of Naples, where under the shadow of Vesuvius, residents have a much more urgent volcanic threat, that of the Campi Flegre. And Paul Rhodes is here with the papers. Paul, a very good morning to you. What have you spotted? Happy Christmas, I should say. Thank you, Emma. Good morning. Yes, we'll be talking about how UK political parties are getting on an election footing, uh, the lack of snow and ice in the American Midwest, and how young people are reclaiming rail travel in France. Thank you very much indeed, Paul. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. We turn our attention now to the middle of next month when Republican voters in the US state of Iowa will be the first to cast their vote for who they want to run for president at the end of next year. Republicans will gather in small groups at their local schools, churches or community halls for what's known as a caucus. Low-key the system may be, but the Iowa caucuses often offer a key indication of who will end up being the Republican nominee. Um, Chris Lord is Monocle's US editor and he joins me in the studio. Welcome back, Chris. Good morning. Um, And the name that people are suggesting is going to be the overwhelming winner of this is Donald Trump. What are your thoughts on that? So, yes, I hear that that is uh, consistently been the story when you've looked at the polls in the approach to the first caucuses there in Iowa. Right before Christmas, obviously, we had this extraordinary news out of Colorado, which threw into question a little bit whether his eligibility in that state may be on the ballot. Regardless, those papers have been printed. There are going to be those caucuses sitting down in a couple of weeks' time to decide who they believe should be the nominee for the Republican Party. Um, I think regardless of that, what we always have to remember is that these primaries and caucuses, as, as we go in the months ahead, obviously to Iowa first, then New Hampshire, then to South Carolina, these are not static events. They are reactive. So depending on what happens in the first has an impact on what happens on the second. And it's not unheard of to go into these se- into primary seasons with a very clear sort of front runner and to see that be whittled away as the uh, various um, nominations you know you don't, you don't have to go very far back to have found a situation where everybody said well obviously this person's going to end up leading the party into the next election and it turns out that they actually don't when it gets down to these caucuses which means that they're they are, they are an amazing thing to see i mean you just mentioned then the low key element of them people gathering in you know in living rooms and and uh, and churches and local halls and so on that's specifically the the iowa situation the caucuses there they're very they're very local events they're very grassroots in a certain way for the party and so therefore they do represent a lot which is a reassuring idea when we've talked so many times on monocle radio about the idea of democracy being under threat in the united states you have direct democracy in action you have Passions running high, let's put it that way. People care still. And Iowa, I've spent some time in Iowa. In fact, if you pick up the current issue of Monocle, you'll see we've done a whole survey of the state of Iowa. Uh, We were looking more from a sort of entrepreneurial opportunity side of it. But I think what's very interesting about that place is that, you know, Iowans very proud of the fact that they do kick off the, the sort of primary season with their caucus because I think they regard themselves as a sort of good judge of character. They've done it for so long now that in a way they're very good at whittling out 
you know exactly what people think of uh, of these various uh, players. It's interesting, you know, if you look just a year ago, everybody was really saying that Ron DeSantis was the shoe in to lead the party into the next election. In fact, actually, if you look at the polls now, it's almost a complete inversion of that. And um, the, the the sort of second runner is really Nikki Haley going into this into this season as, as she's sort of really started to push through uh, and make herself heard and and be a, to some extent slightly surprised second place. Um, so, you know, Ron DeSantis has gone around all the counties of Iowa. He prides himself, 99 counties he's gone around in this process in leading up to the caucuses. Uh, and yet that hasn't actually nudged his figures very much. And so it just shows you how when people, um, you know, when they actually do start going out and meeting the public, it's dynamic. It means that di- democracy, as you said, does not die in darkness. So politics is always ultimately about judging a character. Do I trust that person to lead my country? But the frontrunner, Donald Trump, is mired by so many legal problems, trials, accusations, Colorado's Supreme Court saying that he's not fit to even have his name on the ballot paper in their state. How much does that actually affect things in in the likes of Iowa when the idea of a, a judge of character suddenly becomes a, takes on a whole new role when it becomes when it refers to Donald Trump? The polls, as it stands, suggest that it's not moved the needle hugely. And in fact, if anything, really, I think these various legal travails that we have seen over twenty twenty three, various court cases being um, arraigned and and really setting the stage for some major legal tussles in the next 12 months, um, have actually, if, done any, if they've done anything, they've actually sort of helped, helped his numbers and, and boosted up. And given this idea that there is a, um, a sort of a, a judiciary in the service of, of the opponents of Donald Trump, and that has, if you will, energised, I think, a lot of voters who, who do, in, to some extent, believe in his, his mission. But I do wonder... Once we actually get into those living rooms, into those local parish halls and so on, and people do start having those conversations and hearing, uh, you know, hearing what the candidates have to say at the caucuses and so on, what that actually really looks like. And I think in the next 12 months, you know, by March, we're going to have the next stage of the uh, January 6th. 2021 investigation led by Special Counsel Jack Smith, you're going to hear more of that federal case move along a little bit further. And I do wonder, as more of that starts to come out and we get further into these primaries, it's going to be such a dynamic primary season, this, because there's going to be so much news that's so different from, you know, typically the news is who's winning on the on the debate stage. This is going to be who's succeeding in court how do people look in court? How much will the likes of Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley um, actually try to play on Donald Trump and his court travails? Or will they have to step back because it's a really difficult position, isn't it? There are various uh, legal mechanisms that they're going to need to be very careful of. They don't want to step on anything that might contempt uh, what's going on or trying to, to, to use their political influence, if you will, to kind of shape that conversation around what's happening in the court. Uh, also, we have seen all the way through in the run-up to the primaries, we've seen them all pay homage to Trump, really, uh, because they feel that they don't want to lose his base as a potential voter and, and, and put themselves, if you will, against him. But I think slowly that has turned and we have seen the likes of DeSantis and to some extent Haley, certainly not Ramaswamy, but the the, the two sort of second and third places uh, really start to, um, if you will, show that they believe that he's possibly not the person for the job. Nevertheless, 
Ron DeSantis, in the immediate aftermath of the Colorado decision, immediately said that it, you know, cast aspersions on the idea that this was an independent judicial, you know, an independent judicial decision, that it wasn't partisan, uh, that it was actually something, a sort of Democrat plot. So I think we're going to see, as we get deeper into this and things get very, very dynamic in terms of how uh, people start to vote, I think you're going to start to see more, more of these candidates being much more vocal about their old boss. Chris Lord, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. You're listening to Monocle Radio. This is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. And the time here in London is eight minutes past seven. You are listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. On the 27th of December, a tiny bit Christmassy still. Or we, Paul Rhodes, uh, Deputy Publishing Editor of Newsweek, joins me in the studio. How, how, how Christmassy are we still feeling? A very, very season's greetings to you. Thank you, Emma. Um, yeah, we're feeling um, still a bit um, festive. I guess there's the, um, yeah, I'll be eating leftovers for days on end now of uh, turkey and whatnot. So. Well, you think, you think you're going to be eating leftovers. I did two turkeys. I've well, done two turkeys in 48 hours, so I will be shaped like a turkey very soon. <laughs> I'm sure there's a record for that. Um, is, there any paper, is there any news happening? Or are people still sort of hibernating in their caves with their 30 kilos of turkey? Well, they, well, I think many people in Britain probably are, but um, the people who aren't are certainly the um, UK's main political parties, the Conservatives and Labour. Um, there was a story out in The Guardian um, this morning that um, Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, wants all to finalise the party's manifesto by February the 8th so that they are ready for a spring or early summer election. They figure that uh, Rishi Sunak, who's the leader of the Conservative Party uh, in power now, will be calling um, an election sooner rather than later in 2024, because, of course, 2024 is the year of the election um, for many countries around the world. Um there is this sort of talk this morning that um, the Conservatives are, and this is reported in some of the other papers, the Conservatives are going to try and set a budget which is irreversible for, for five years, effectively to sort of chop the legs off any opposition party which intends to come into power. And there is always that dreadful risk, isn't there, by when you are the opposition trying to get yourself a toehold, trying to show people what you're going to do, that if you go too early, then you're, then, you know, the incumbents, in this case, the Conservatives, are able to say, well, ha ha ha, we're going to take that idea and we're going to run with it ourselves. And, and thus taking the, 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 the sort of like the, the air out of it. Have you seen this happen here in the United Kingdom? Or, or how much is there a fear that or what the papers are reporting, at least, that this is actually what could happen here? Um, yeah, it, it, is, it is certainly something that could happen. But I think what what we've known is that there has to be an election in 2024. And I think the longer that the Conservatives put it off, it, it will look that they're just clinging to power for as long as they can, because they are very much behind in the polls. Um, the Times of London um, came out today with a poll that said just 6% of voters say that Tories are doing well. Um, which is, and only 15% say they are fit for office. So they've got a mountain to climb. But if they can set this budget, as, you, as you've mentioned, and they can institute some kind of 
tax cut in some way to incentivize people. And, and then they can change the narrative and say, look, we are making things better for people. We're holding this spring election. Now we've got all these things going forward and they're certainly would be hoping to gain some momentum. And what's, what's Newsweek's view on this? About a year ago, the, the leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer, um, was considered to be lacking in charisma, dry, unable to sort of punch through any kind of sort of public forum with any kind of impact. And yet now, as we go into 2024, is there a sense that actually he walks a bit taller and his shoulders are a bit broader and he, he looks like a leader in waiting? It seems that way. He's been working, uh, I guess, like they all, all the leaders have on their social media. There's been Keir Starmer doing his, uh, um, with, with a picture of him on his Instagram on Christmas Day, down at the pub, holding a pint, saying, I'm having a drink with my friends, kind of being the everyman, where there was Rishi Sunak doing his Home Alone sketch in, in number 10 on social media. So they are trying to reach out and attract voters in, in new and more dynamic and ways. And hanging out with the king on the telly last night. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, what else have you spotted? Well, it's, it's, um, it, it may be winter and cold, and you would certainly think so in the, in the American Midwest, but that is far from the case. Or there's, it's, it's snowless there and very warm right now. Um, the New York Times has a story about this uh, record-breaking warm winter. Um, saying how Lucy Wallace, uh, who was moved from San Diego um, to Minneapolis, was and bought all her winter clobber, as you would expect from there. It's, it's Fargo country, isn't it? Where everybody's in all these big parkas and whatnot. And she was out running in a T-shirt on Christmas Day in 12-degree weather. Goodness me. Because we had, a, we had a Christmas of extremes here in the United Kingdom, at least. We had snow in the north of Scotland, which meant that everybody who'd put a few pounds on whether it was going to be White Christmas were, were, would be quids in. But at the same time, you could be doing it from, you could be putting your bet on from 15 degrees Celsius in, in the southeast of England, couldn't you? It was, it was strange. And, and, the, and I mean, what is the commentary? It's, it's, it's immediately leading to a discussion about climate change. Well, well yes, it was. I mean, that was one of the other um, facts that the um, in New York Times presented, it was that it was in the warm, the Earth's warmest year for 174 years, and most likely the past 125,000. Although I can't quite confirm that, um, but um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it is, and, it, and it, so that is kind of worrying. I mean, they they speak with Ted Bond, who is the president of the Wisconsin Interscholastic Fishing Association, and they've had to push back all their ice fishing competitions because there is no more ice on the lakes. Goodness me. Right. Okay, next story. What else have you spotted? We've got, well, um, Le Monde um, is speaking about the rail revolution in France, and I think there could be, um, certainly in 2024, quite an attraction of, 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 of giving up flying for the shorter haul flights and, and taking trains, you know, to your holiday destinations and, and seeing the voyage uh, on the train as part of the attraction and part of the adventure of getting there. And, and there are many French companies that are, are trying to attract young travelers to, to trains more. And with the Occitanie region in the south of France, they've got their rail tour card where you spend 10 euros a day and you can get as many trains as you like. So you can hop to smaller parts without having to get a car or maybe that might not be as accessible on a, a plane. And how successful do you think this idea is going to be? And it sounds perfectly, perfectly reasonable, doesn't it? Well, I mean, there, there's many, especially overnight trains have been uh, opening up more. They've they've reopened the Paris to Berlin line, and that's doing quite well. And and the and the piece reports that like Paris to Toulouse and Paris to Nice are two routes that have seen much more traffic. And 
could be the the way forward for overnight travel as well. Indeed, having tried to get trains across France at the moment, I've discovered that they're all full when you try and get... I mean, that is the trouble of popularity as well. And there's also that enormous pressure of, of, a, of a significant reduction in the, mon- in the amount of domestic air travel in France as well. You, you cannot fly if you, can, if you can do it on a train instead. Yeah, well, yes, definitely. But you just have to watch out for those kind of um, wildcat strikes and walkouts like they had on the Eurostar, unfortunately, for some travellers right before Christmas. I thought that was just part of French culture. <laughs> <laughs> I think many people in Britain did. Having lived through it. Paul Rhodes, thank you so much. Uh, that was Paul Rhodes, Deputy Publishing Editor of Newsweek. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. The time is 7.16 here in London. A quick look now at the latest news headlines. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says more than 240 people have died in the last 24 hours following Israel's continuing operations in the region. The head of the Israeli army says the conflict will continue for many months. Russia says it's to deploy its new howitzer artillery units to the region bordering Norway and Finland. The head of the Rostec state defence conglomerate said the new units have been tested and mass production has begun. Meanwhile, the Turkish Foreign Affairs Commission has approved Sweden's NATO membership bid. It's being seen as a key step for Sweden after 19 months of delays during which Ankara has demanded security-related concessions from Stockholm. China has threatened to place further trade sanctions on Taiwan if the ruling party in Taipei continues to push for independence. The warning comes ahead of presidential elections in Taiwan next month. The South Korean actor Lee Sung Kwan has died. He was 48. Lee was best known for his role in the Oscar-winning film Parasite. And tributes have been paid to Bill Granger, the Australian chef who's died aged 54. His family said he will be remembered as the king of breakfast for making unpretentious food into something special filled with sunshine. Granger opened more than a dozen restaurants worldwide and was the author of 14 cookbooks. And those are the headlines on Monocle Radio. Now, in the past few months, Italy has been preparing for a potentially devastating volcanic eruption which could see hundreds of thousands of people displaced. Forget Vesuvius and Etna, you've likely never heard of the Campi Fliglei. Even if it explodes, the impact will be felt across Europe. Monocle's Isabella Jewell filed this report from Naples. They are sleeping on the volcano, on the the crater, in in the crater. Naples has existed alongside three active volcanoes for millennia. Of course, the famous Vesuvius, one on the island of Ischia and another to the west of the city. It's called the Campi Flegrei and doesn't look like your typical volcano. Dr Giuseppe Di Natale, research director from the Naples chapter of the National Institute of Geophysics and Volcanology, explains. Campi Flegrei is a so-called collapse caldera. It means it is uh, uh, an area which collapsed because of uh, a large eruption that uh, drew out a lot of uh, magma and so there was a void generated uh, below and this area collapses. These caldera are the most powerful volcanoes in the sense that they can generate uh, the largest uh, eruption uh, on the earth. I met Dr Di Natale in Naples' Vesuvius Observatory. And that is the map of so this is an aerial view of yes. the whole region of the Campi Flegrei. Yes, and these are the earthquakes. Uh, so red ones are uh, within one week. Here, a team of scientists monitor the area for earthquakes. Right now, all eyes are on the Campi Flegrei. 
So far this year, scientists have recorded more than 3,000 earthquakes in the area, a threefold increase on last year. The ground levels in the area have also risen due to a seismic phenomenon called bradycism. While the damage to buildings so far this year has been minimal, the frequency of the tremors has concerned volcanologists, as it could point to an impending eruption. Professor Giulio Zucchero has been involved in the study of evaluation of risk assessment related to volcanoes since 1980. The earthquake is a premonitory event. It's not the eruption, of course, but is part of the volcanic process. Last month, authorities issued an emergency plan for the Campi Flegrei. If the earthquakes get worse or an eruption occurs, the consequences would be devastating. De Natale again. The peculiarity of this area is that it's very densely populated. So this is the most risky area in the world for a volcanic hazard. There are several elements of this latest emergency plan for the Campi Flegrei. Professor Giulio Zucchero again. The main uh, mitigation measure is the evacuation. There is no chance to stay in the area to mitigate the impact. So the population has to be taken out of the area. Which area? The red zone. Which is the red zone? The red zone is the area where the pyroclastic flow are expected. That is a phenomenon that uh, is not something that people can face with. These rapidly moving flows of hot rock, dust and gas would kill anyone in their path. So, has been prepared a plan that in 72 hours, the civil protection can evacuate all the people of the area. In the area we have uh, 550,000 people. In the red zone one, they decide to introduce another red zone, the red zone two. So now we are faced with uh, an evacuation of uh, more than 850,000 people. The Campania region is not prepared to relocate all these people. So the idea was to spread out Lombardia take uh, 50,000, Sardinia take 30,000, Sicily take uh, 20,000, and so on. For Professor De Natale, this plan raises some real questions. If you move 1% of the Italian population, you make an economic damage of at least 1% of the gross product. The problems don't end there. Eruption forecast is not an exact science. We can see, okay, it seems that could erupt, but we are not sure if and when it will erupt. So the problem is that if you really evacuate, these people must go away for almost forever. The best way would be to decrease significantly the population in this area by stimulating the people, also economically, to start this second life well before then the emergency becomes critical. Agreeing to leave your home, job and beloved neighbourhood is hardly a simple decision. Giulio Zucchero again. I'll tell you that the people in that area love very much that area. That is beautiful, that has a story, has everything. Living on a volcano will always be risky, but for those willing to accept the threat of an eruption, the Civil Protection Agency has a plan. People are not always conscious 
of the risk that they are living. And this is very important in order not to scare us, but not to be not conscious. I mean, there is a balance between two opposite uh, attitudes, two opposite uh, way to live the normal life uh, on the volcano. I will say, I always say to the people when uh, I have uh, had the opportunity to speak with them, look, you are sleeping on the volcano. For Monocle in Naples, I'm Isabella Jewell. Thank you for that, Isabella. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Now, the time here in London is 7.24, which means it's 8.24 in Ljubljana, which is where we head now to uh, join Monocle's correspondent, Guy Delaunay, for the latest news from the Balkans. Uh, season's greetings, Mr Delaunay. And likewise, Srechan Bozic to you. Oh, stop, stop it. Um, how is life? Hey, got to give it a go. <laughs> you know, it's not Christmas in Serbia. It not until when? No, that's next week, isn't it? It's the 7th. Exactly so. And yep. it's caused an enormous hoo-ha because Ukraine has gone to the 25th. Ah, well, yeah. there you go. I was so busy celebrating here that I didn't notice. Ah, Sorry about okay. that, Ukraine. That's absolutely fine. Uh, no, Serbia and Russia, I think, are the ones who are still doing the uh, the Julian calendar on the 7th. But, Indeed. Uh, meanwhile, everybody... We're, we're very orthodox in Serbia. Meanwhile, everybody is staggering, staggering around stuff full of Turkey here in the UK. What news from where you are, apart from the fact that we're not there yet when it comes to Christmas? Well, this is what's really swung things for people when they're looking at what's going on in Serbia at the moment. They're saying, hang on, they're protesting on Christmas Day. And I have to say, well, no, they're not protesting on Christmas Day. But we have had nightly protests in Belgrade. And, uh, you know, regular listeners will recall that uh, we had elections in Belgrade about a week and a half ago and also in the national parliamentary elections. So we had parliamentary elections and municipal elections in just over half the municipalities in Serbia, including crucially Belgrade. And the opposition are crying foul, and they're particularly crying foul over the election for Belgrade City Assembly, uh, which they say was manipulated by the governing Progressive Party. The specific accusation is that the Progressives bust in tens of thousands of people who didn't actually live in Belgrade from other municipalities that weren't having elections, plus neighbouring countries where ethnic Serbs live, like Bosnia and Croatia and Kosovo. And uh, this is very naughty, according to the opposition. They've been holding nightly protests, which turned a bit nasty on Sunday when there was a crowd outside City Hall, windows were smashed, police intervened, and all sorts of uh, black ops were alleged. It's uh, this is this perpetual sort of election cycle, isn't it? That every couple of years, that the Progressive Party decide to go to the polls because it means that they can uh, sort of pitch in for for a little bit bit longer in power. Um, the fact that this is now turned quite violent, what does what difference does that make? 
Well, it's very interesting. Firstly, as you mentioned, we have these elections regularly. So the last elections in uh, Serbia were April of last year. So it's not even been two years since the last elections. This is despite the fact that the progressives have a very stable government or had a very stable government uh, nationally. They were also in charge in Belgrade. There was actually no real reason for them to go to the polls, although the opposition asked them to do so. And that was always a bit of a risk, to be frank. Um, why it's interesting we've now got these shenanigans with what's going on in, in Belgrade. Well, you, you know, it's it, the stakes are high there. The opposition had prioritised what was the Belgrade City Assembly. They really didn't think that taking power nationally was realistic, and the polls proved them absolutely correct in that. They, they I wouldn't say they took a thumping, because they would have been fairly, fairly pleased with the results, but the progressives got twice as many votes. In Belgrade, the margin of victory for the progressives was four percentage points and the opposition reckon that's within the margin of what may have been manipulated so these scenes that we're seeing outside belgrade city hall on sunday nightly outside the central election commission that's that's indicating the opposition trying to get belgrade election rerun um, whether they'll succeed or not it seems to be now entirely in the hands uh, of, of an anti-vaxxer doctor who rather unexpectedly won 6% in the Belgrade city elections and is, an, in effect, you know, will, will be the kingmaker. And if he says he's not going to form a coalition with anybody, then the progressives have an elegant way to say, we will restage the vote, which doesn't look like them just caving to these protests. Just a quick question in terms of the context of this, because uh, Serbia has been an, an accession country for the European Union for, for more than a decade now. And one of the things that is a condition of entry to the EU is that you are free and fair and you keep your nose clean. What does what does this kind of sense of unrest actually mean for Serbia's long-term plans to join the European Union? It's it's not the unrest itself which is a problem. I mean, the protest is a legitimate right and one which generally Serbia uh, allows quite well. We've, we've, as President Vucic has pointed out, for all the years that he's been in power, there have been protests more or less every year and they've gone ahead usually fairly peacefully um, and we haven't had any major incidents on the whole. The incidents we had on Sunday outside Belgrade City Hall when, when rocks were thrown at the, uh, at the windows of the building and there were arrests after that, the opposition alleged there were agents provocateurs involved, uh, football hooligans who were sent in by, and they would say the Progressive Party, uh, to make the protesters look bad. Um, it's not unknown for agent provocateur to be deployed in Serbia. So the, those allegations need to be properly independently tested. In terms of what it means for Serbia and the EU, the bigger question is more the point about what you were saying regarding the regular elections. Um, the International Observation Mission said that this was a problem, that having this constant churn of elections, this constant dissolution and reformation of governments was damaging the citizens' faith in the democratic process, that if you elect a government um, in April of 2023, they only take office in October of, sorry, 2022, they only take office six months later, and just about a year down the line, you're having another election. That doesn't make you feel very good about the electoral process. And they've also been looking at these allegations of vote manipulation. That is the sort of thing which is going to play into Serbia's EU accession hopes a lot more than the fact 
fact that we've got, say, five to 6,000 protesters on the streets of Belgrade every evening. Finally, let's talk about um, a country which is a part of the EU and whose um, citizens who have decided to leave their country, Croatia, are sending a lot of cash back home. They absolutely are. And the the interesting thing about Croatia, there's 27 countries in the European Union, Croatia being the the last of those to join in 2013. And now, per capita, um, Croatians send more money back to their home country than any other expat EU workers. So this is now equivalent to 7.6% of Croatia's GDP comes in the form of remittances um, from people who've left and gone to work largely in other EU countries. You know, when you look at the population figures for Croatia, it's very hard to get a precise handle on how many people have gone. Um, But it's somewhere between a quarter of a million and half a million people in a country of fewer than four million people. Um, have skedaddled over the past 10 years to to, to work in in other countries. So 2.6 billion euros, 7.6% of GDP. Um, That's where Croatia is these days. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because it's brilliant that they're sending all this money back. But at the same time, the talent is not in the Croatia. No, and it's it's the talent in all sorts of areas. So, of course, you've got the brain drain. People who are well-educated, naturally, they can get better paid elsewhere. Um, but increasingly, you're finding that you know, vital work isn't... They can't find people to do the essential jobs uh, that any country needs to be done. I mean, things like driving buses and trams, uh, people working in hospitality industries. Going to Croatia now, and I've done stories on this, I mean, you've, you'll find, particularly in service industries... Uh, you're more likely to have restaurant staff from Nepal than you are from Croatia in some places. That, that's, that's what's happening. And, you know, we've, we're seeing bus drivers, Arriva, which is a big in bus operator, which operates in lots of different countries in Europe, including in the UK. Um, they've been bringing in bus, bus drivers from Nepal to work in Serbia because the Serbian bus drivers have gone to Croatia and Germany, for example. So you know, all these knock-on effects are taking place. So you, you look at the remit- and you think, well, that's very nice for the people who are receiving them. But in terms of the countries that they've left, they're, they're facing day-to-day problems and just getting things done. Guy Deloney, thank you so much for joining us from the Slovenian capital, Ljubljana. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson, and that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and thanks to the producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, Tom Webb and Monica Lillis. Our studio manager was Christy O'Grady. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.